I want to begin with Psalm 95. And I want to ask before I read the psalm, just a, a question that uh, the psalmist is kind of asking. And that is, what motivates you to action? There are certain things in your life that motivate you to action. Home shopping network, does that motivate you to action? Um, Ole Miss football, Mississippi State football, Southern Miss. I have one of my, my uh, uh, resolutions is not to leave out Southern Miss in my football uh, mentions this year. Uh, is, is this the kind of thing that moves you to action? A new restaurant that you've discovered it, you want all your friends to go, and it just motivates you to say, let's go together, you got to go. Uh, a new iPhone that you would stand in line for hours and hours to, to achieve, you, you, it just motivates you to actually move in your life. A political campaign, look, great. No problem with any of that. No problem. But the psalmist in Psalm 95 says that God's greatness and God's grace is the thing that moves him to action. In fact, when, when you look at Psalm 95 and the church over these thousands of years has used Psalm 95 as one of the primary calls to worship, if not the primary call to worship in the history of the church, when you read Psalm 95, what you see is somebody who's kind of gotten hold of something that is so moving, that is moving him to action. And it is like that person who says, this is it, this is what I love, this is what moves me, and you got to have it, you see. Come with me. And, and I love the first word. If you look at the first word of the psalm, the first word of the psalm is kind of a strange word, and it? Oh! Oh! I mean, why couldn't it have been just, come, let us worship, come, let us shout to the Lord, come, let us... But it's, oh! And we get, oh, don't we? This is personal. This is something that is deeply held because of its value, because of its meaning. Uh, oh, let us... Let us come and sing praise. Oh, let us thank God. And this is my prayer for 2014. That God's grace, rooted in God's glory, would motivate us to action. And that we would be able to behold the glory of God and have greater understanding of who He is and therefore the meaning of what he has done and this combination of God's glory and his grace would just get in our souls in a fresh way and move us to worship. Move us to praise. Move us to thanksgiving. Move us to ministry. I, I want to call it God's grace in motion. And what I'm praying is that we will see, maybe in a new way in some of our lives, what God's grace moving us and moving through us looks like in this church this year and looks like in this community. More next week on what that looks like specifically in your lives. I'm going to outline some, some things. I'm going to outline a few expectations, if you don't mind. I'm going to outline some opportunities for us as we move into this year together of worship and love. But today, it's about God's greatness that defines his grace. And so let's start our ministry year by reading Psalm 95, the word of the Lord. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. 
Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into His presence with thanksgiving and let us make a joyful noise to Him with songs of praise. Because for the Lord is a great God. A great King above all gods. In His hands are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are also His. The sea is His. He made it. His hands formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as on the day at Massa in the wilderness when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work for 40 years. I loathed that generation. And I said, these are a people who have gone astray in their heart and they have not known my ways and therefore I swore in my wrath they shall never enter my rest. I'd like to look at this passage about God's greatness and His grace and His care and what moves us in our lives kind of in terms of of something that we see in the text that is very dear. And it has to do with how the hands of God are very prominent in this text. How, How God is very active. And we respond with motivation and love and worship to how active God is. And I want to start by just looking at God as creator and how God's hands, we see, it's kind of a metaphor of creation, how God's hands... Formed For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods because He's before everything. He's the Creator. And in His hands, do you see this? In His hands are the depths of the earth and the, the heights, the mountains are also His. The sea is His. Why? Because He made it. And His hands formed the dry land. God is the omnipotent all-powerful, all-wise creator of everything. The reason He is the great King above all is He preceded all. God had no beginning. But in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is how great God is. This is the God we must worship because He is, as we read, our Maker, as well as the One with His hands. Can you see God as an omnipotent, glorious master artist who is just forming this beautiful world and then forming Adam and then forming Eve and and creating life for those who are made in His image. And, And that is us. From the top to the bottom, the mountains to the depths, it is all His. I I tell you, look around you. Look around you. This is what Romans 1 says. Look around you and you will see the glory of God. Look around you at the sky, look around you at the trees, look around you at water and its many forms and the sun and the moon and say to your soul, oh, he's so great. He actively formed what I see. He is a glorious 
God. And we read in verse 6, O come, it's the second O, O come, let us worship and bow down, let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. So you see this, this greatness of God and His hands that form all that you see? Well, he's also the God whose hands save us. O come, let us sing to the Lord, let us make a joyful noise, quote, to the rock of our salvation. You see, God not only creates, He saves. And the hands that formed the dry land are also the hands that saved. Now, what is the meaning of the rock of our salvation? There's actually several meanings of this in the, the Old Testament. Uh, one of them has to do with the, with the rock being our security, being the, the one, if you will, that we can always run to, our deliverer, our strong place. And, and when we see the rock, you know, the rock, our Savior, as that strong place, what we realize is, is that we run to the rock because we can't provide our own deliverance. We can't provide our own salvation and God has provided it and nothing can shake it. And this term throughout the Old Testament of, of the rock, uh, that He Himself is the rock of our salvation. He has provided deliverance. Charles Spurgeon put it this way, Christ is our abiding, unchanging, and mighty rock. And in Him alone we find deliverance and safety. Therefore, it becomes us to praise Him with heart and voice from day to day. And especially, we should delight to do this when we assemble as His people for worship. He says, we who have hidden in that rock can truly praise Him. And then other scholars see the rock as the rock in Exodus and the rock in Numbers. And we're going to look at that rock in a moment. It's like, why does he have to bring the whole Meribah rock thing into Psalm 95, you know? And, and the idea of God as the rock of salvation in Exodus and Numbers is that water springs forth from the rock when Moses strikes the rock. 1 Corinthians 10, 4 does go on to say that rock was Christ. And, the, and, and that rock is the one who was struck and poured forth living water just because he wanted to. To a people who are stiff-necked and rebellious, he gives salvation, you see. More on Moses and the rock in a moment. But we, we do know this for certain, that God's people, at the time of the writing of this psalm, did understand clearly that salvation would come from God. It would come from his activity as surely as God formed the dry land. God himself will save. And nothing but God's salvation, a holy God, will even matter for us. You have to go back, among many other places, to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis 12, 15, and 17 are the places where God met with Abraham and God made a covenant with Abraham. Just stop for a second right there. God promised a sinner. God bound himself to a, a rebellious sinner who's unlike God. Yes, it's hard to believe that God, 
the one who formed the planet, God, the one who is holy, would actually bind himself to us, but he has. And God has promised salvation in this. God has promised many facets of this covenant. God will never forsake his covenant. And God will bring that salvation to pass. And how do we know that? Well, we know it because we've seen the rest of the story, right? But even they knew it at the time. Because in Genesis 15, when God made that covenant with Abraham, he commanded Abraham to to take the bull and, and to cut the bull and several animals cut them into pieces. And so I want you to see on the on the on this place there's just like bloody half animals and a path between the animals, all right? This is uh, a covenant practice of the time. It could be a bird, it, could, it didn't have to be like a bull or something like that. But the idea is, hey, when two people enter into a contract, think of your mortgage for a minute. Like one person promises to give the money and you promise to do what? Pay. And if you don't pay, what happens to you? You get the house taken away from you. And so the bank kind of walks between the bloody pieces. You know, may, you know, may something bad happen if, I, if we renege on, on, on making this mortgage and you walk between the bloody pieces. May something bad happen to me if I don't pay my mortgage. I mean, I know that's just a, a lame example, but look, this was kind of the way covenants worked. And we read in Genesis 15, 17, these words, When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot, a symbol of the Holy Spirit, the presence of God, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between those pieces. Abraham had fallen into a deep sleep in dread darkness. Abraham awakes to see that God is basically shortcutting the covenant ceremony and excluding him from walking between the pieces. Do you know why? Because God is saying, I will do it. This is the very action of God to say, I will do it. And so the rock of salvation, look, it's not just like something. It is an activity of a God who loves his people who wants to gather and set his affection on his people forever. That's you. And, and we see the whole story, don't we? The hands that formed the dry land, that created, those hands are stretched out on a Roman cross, aren't they? Those hands get nails in them. That's amazing. That the God of glory, by his action of creation, out of who he is, is the God of grace, by solely completing salvation and giving this in the midst of His promises. This is incredible. You see, God's grace is about God. It's not about us. We don't have any claim to God. All we bring to the table with a holy, holy God of glory is our sin and rebellion. Right? I mean, I'm not trying to, like, impugn anybody. That's who we are. God's grace is about God. And, and truly, God's grace makes no sense at all unless you get God's holy, holy greatness. Because without God's holy, holy, holy greatness, grace is just a word. It's just a psychological construct to make you feel better. 
Grace is not a substance. Grace is not a commodity. Grace is a relationship that we're not supposed to have with God. Who alone by His action gives it to us. Oh, let us sing praises to Him. Let us thank Him. He with His hands formed the the dry land. Oh, let us sing to the rock of our salvation. That God who has secured our salvation. You know, I don't know about you, but when you think about who that is and what He has done, and you really begin to think about God's grace, it does make you say, I recognize that you're great. And I recognize that it is all of you. And you want to praise God and you want to thank Him. So, the hands that form are the hands that save. Thirdly, is this idea in the passage... And, and, you know, that was kind of just what the rest of the story looked like, the hands of Jesus on a cross. But back to the passage in verse 6, the hands that care and lead in the present tense. It's not just about who God is and what He did one time. Oh, verse 6, Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Maker. Why? For He is... Our God. And we are the people of His pasture. We, get ready for the word, are the sheep of His what? Hand. Very high. Very close. You get that? Very glorious. Very personal. But God has laid His hands on me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. You don't get that in any other religion, by the way. Sometimes you get an austere God, and you respect Him, and you do what He says. But He hadn't he he come and by His own action saved you independent of you. He doesn't put His hands of care and mercy and love upon you and never take His hands off of you. He is this tender, tender, and what is the word? Shepherd. The psalmist is saying to all of us in the great assembly who are motivated by who God is and and what He has done, oh, let us worship. Because who He is to us right now who He is to us right now. What what do shepherds do? We're the flock under His care. We're the sheep of His pasture. We're the flock of His hand, the sheep of His hand. What do shepherds do? Shepherds are real austere and they just sit up in a rocking chair and let the world run, right? No, they don't do that. Shepherds take care of their sheep. They tune into their sheep. They protect their sheep. And a lot of this whole thing about salvation has to do with deliverance and the mighty power of God, and He protects us, they, they feed their sheep. They give water to their sheep. If you are one of Yahweh, God's sheep, you are well cared for. I don't know what's going on in your life. You are well cared for. He hasn't checked out on you. You are going through something that is horrendous. But I want you to know, that's the hands of the shepherd on you. You are the sheep of His hand. If you have put your trust in the one who died on the cross, who formed the universe. 
Don't you want to celebrate that? If that's real, that moves you. And it is. And this year we're going to focus on God's grace rooted in His greatness and what it means to walk with this shepherd and what it means to love and worship and serve God and see grace in motion through our lives. Isn't that wonderful? So, here's the interesting question about Psalm 95. Why did he have to put this really negative thing on the backside of such high call to worship and an intimate relationship with his people? Why did God have to mess up Psalm 95 with bringing up this bad subject of the waters of Meribah, and, and also known as Massa? Well, he is the shepherd who saves us for himself to follow him, like, like sheep do with the shepherd, right? To be cared for and blessed. And it's beautiful. And to be a blessing. But we need to follow the shepherd. See, this is the point at the end. It's like, this is so great. This is so personal. This is so magnanimous. Don't harden your hearts. Don't turn away. John 10, Lee read it earlier. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I know my own and my own know me. You see this personal. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, they know me and I lay down my life for the sheep. Follow the shepherd. And you know what God is saying to me and to you here at the end of Psalm 195? This is who I am. This is, I'm the one who formed everything. I'm the one whose hand saved you. I'm the shepherd. The, you are the sheep of my hand. Oh, don't turn away from me. Trust me. Follow me. I've got this thing, you see. Nobody else could save you. Nobody else can lead you where you need to go because you don't have the compass and the gyroscope and the ability to know what you really need in the long term and where you need to go. Oh, don't turn away from me. Don't harden your hearts like they did at Massa in the wilderness. Verse 7, today if you hear his voice. You hear his voice? I do. Do not harden your hearts like they did at Meribah. Bitter quarreling is what it means. As on the day at Massa, the testing of God, putting God to the test in the wilderness. When your fathers put me to the test, they put me to the proof. Though they had seen my grace, though they had seen my work, for 40 years, God said. I loathed that generation. Wait a minute, that's not the God that I'm going to serve. I don't know who you serve. This is God. For 40 years, I loathed that generation. And I said, they are a people who go astray in their heart. And I, they, they do not, they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall never enter my rest. At Meribah, God wasn't the only one angry. Moses was angry. Because, see... You've got to understand something. I want you to think about your life. I, want to, I need to think about my life in terms of this. Every day, God put manna 
solid food on the ground. And they can't trust him for water. Red seas are opening. Ground is opening. People are being swallowed up. I mean, there's all these miracles. The mighty, Every day he gives them food. And they get to a place where there's no water. And what God is saying is, you know what? You can trust me, but you don't. This grace is real. I got you. I got my hands on you. Why do you got to live like my hands aren't on you? You see, you get this. And Moses himself, Moses and Aaron, in, in Numbers 20, God says, Moses, this is the second occurrence of this thing. Moses, he says, Moses, I want you to speak to the rock and I will bring forth water. In other words, I want you to say, God is about to provide water for you. Moses, he's so mad at these people. He says, you rebellious people, are we, me and Aaron, going to have to bring forth water from this rock? Folks, what is wrong with that? Moses, we read in, in, in Numbers 20, Moses took the staff, verse 9, from, from before the Lord, and, and Moses gathered, Here now, you rebels, we shall, shall we bring water out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock, with his staff two times, and water came out abundantly. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe me, because you did not trust me to uphold as, as the holy eyes of the people, uh, and, and, and to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given you. And Moses, because of that, was not allowed to go into the promised land. I'm sorry, I can't say it any other way than it said in the Scriptures. And God was gracious. You know what God could have said to Moses right there? No speaky, no waddy. Moses says, I'm going to bring this thing. I'm going to take matters into my own hand. He strikes that rock and God graciously just pours forth water for his people and for Moses out of that rock. Look, I get that. Do you? God's grace is about God. It is about his glorious and wondrous nature and the fact that he created with his hands. There's, he was before everything. There's nobody like him. He is the one who actively came and saved us. He is the one who says, hey, I want, I want to put my hand on you as a shepherd. I want to lead you. You can trust me. But so often in our lives, we get fearful and we want to make it happen. We just keep on striking rocks. And God is so, so gracious. So gracious. You know, I, I need to end. I, I knew this was going to be a problem the first day back. <laughs> on sabbatical, you're going to hear more about it later. But on sabbatical, the Lord was pursuing me. And one night in a location far from here, sounds like Star Wars, in a galaxy far away, I was talking to God. And God did not speak to me audibly, but if I could put it into words, this is not God's words to me, but if I could, it's just too hard to not put it, just put it into words for you, okay? I'll make it simple. Joseph, I know you love me. I know you love my word. I know you love my church. And I know you love to do ministry in my name. And I know you're even willing to do hard things when I ask you to do them. But Joseph, I want you to tune in your heart to me. And I'm here. And Joseph, and you just apply this, you know, I, I don't just want you to be a good leader. I want to provide all you need. You've received so much from me, Joseph, but you still strike that rock 
forgive me for striking rocks as your leader. And I am renewed in my desire to follow the shepherd and let him lead in my life and provide what is necessary, not only for me as a believer, but a leader, and for you in whatever role you are. And God has given you in your life and to love and to serve him. What about you? Let me close just by saying this. They shall never enter my rest. Isn't that a little harsh? Well, it didn't say they didn't go to heaven. What it said is that entire generation died and did not enter the physical land of Canaan. The land promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But you know, the good news about that is, is here as well. And I'll close with this. The, the grace, God's grace is about God. I want you to know that Jesus, on that cross, took our alienation from God. He took our rebellion from God for us. And if you put your trust in Him, let me, be, let me assure you of something. You're going to enter His rest. Hebrews 4.9 says, There remains a rest for the people of God. Because of Jesus and his hands stretched out, if you've put your trust in him, you will enter heaven. You will enter the promised land. So let's put all this together, okay? Oh, this is motivating to the psalmist. Oh, come have some of this with me. Come join me in my action of worship, my action of following the shepherd and bringing glory to God in my life. He is the one who formed things by his mighty hand he's the great king above all gods there's nobody like him he was before everything he is the one the rock of our salvation and we know of course those hands were stretched out on the roman cross for us that brings us into the presence of the holy god because it is his action and not ours he is the shepherd who wants to lay his hands and has laid his hands on our lives right now and we must trust him going forward and he is the one who will, because of his action and just faith in what he has done, will bring us into the promised land called heaven. And you know what he's going to do with his hands? He, with his hand, will wipe every tear from your eyes. You can trust him. Because he's not only here and has his hands on you, he's even going to wipe stains of your tears out of your eyes one day. Is that motivating to you? Let's pray. Lord, take us into that journey. Take us into a worship and a response and a trust and a love of you and a serving of you. Lord, would you set your grace in motion in our midst, in a fresh and wonderful way, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.